You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. New England is leading the way in innovative clean energy financing, but more can be done throughout the region to increase access to low-cost financing for energy efficiency and renewable energy projects. On October 12th, a part of Hub Week 2017, the Ash Center hosted an event titled Innovating Green Financing, Green Banks in New England. Listen in as Brian Garcia, Executive Director of the Connecticut Green Bank, the winner of the 2017 Innovations in American Government Award, Carter Wall, the Managing Director of Franklin Beach Energy, Jeffrey Shubb, Executive Director of the Coalition for Green Capital, and the Honorable Paul Mark, Massachusetts State Representative for the 2nd Berkshire District, discuss the promising future of green banks in New England. Ash Center faculty affiliate Edward Cunningham moderates the conversation. Well, why don't we uh, get started? So uh, thanks for coming today. Um, for, for the perspective of some of the people who are new and also visiting from other parts of Boston, um, we're here really as part of Hub Week. Uh, the Ash Center, which is uh, one of the largest centers at the Kennedy School, uh, is, is hosting. Um, I'm Edward Cunningham. I direct all of our China uh, activities, our China programs at the Ash Center. Um, I also direct the school's Asia Energy and Sustainability Initiative. Um, so this is a, a topic very near and dear to my heart. Um, uh, I've, I've always been interested in sort of the intersection of finance and um, really energy and the environment, and also actually still on the board of a, of a, of a investment bank that only does uh, sustainable infrastructure called Green Tech Capital Advisors. And so we, that bank uh, really focuses mostly on international M&A, and so it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested to, to sort of go into more depth with this panel around some of the more uh, innovative ways in which the U.S., because uh, I spend most of my time abroad, you know, the U.S. is really pushing change in this important field. Um, so we really couldn't have a better uh, group uh, here. We sort of have the rock star panel different parts of the ecosystem from private sector, from government, from the nonprofit uh, sector, really all uh, together um, to, to really talk about what is the, the key to a very successful um, uh, example like the Connecticut Green Bank um, that won our, the Ash Center's Innovations in American Government Award that we, we uh, award each year to different um, local governments that are really doing government faster, better, cheaper, in a more transparent and more accountable way. So that's sort of the, the context. Um, you guys, you have the, the, the bios of, of the Rockstar uh, panel. Just really quickly, uh, to my left is uh, Carter Wall. She is the founder uh, of Franklin Beach Energy, which is an independent power consulting company. More importantly, she has served as a, as a trusty foot soldier uh, on our panel for 25 years, uh, selecting the winners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How could she possibly? She's negative when she was negative three. It began, um, and so she's so she's here to to, to add uh, a lot of color uh, on the on the private sector side. Um, although she's worn many hats over over uh, the years. Uh, next to her is Brian Garcia, who is president and CEO of the Connecticut Green Bank, which is the nation's first state level. Uh, Green Bank. So he will be adding quite a bit uh, on uh, from his perspective of what what worked, um, what's maybe transportable uh, to other communities, um, and also to what extent um, 
we're seeing this as a, a either a national movement or a regional movement, an interim step a step uh, forward or not. So we're quite excited to hear to hear his um, comments. Uh, to his left, um, we then have uh, Jeff, and Jeff Shubb uh, leads um, the Coalition for Green Capital, which is a nonprofit driving the creation of green banks across the U.S. and internationally, uh, which makes me me excited. Um, also in New York uh, in 2013, he worked to develop the New York Green Bank business plan. Um, so he will bring that perspective. Uh, and then finally, uh, last but not least, we have Dr. Uh, Paul Mark, who is the current member uh, of the Massachusetts House of Representatives for the 2nd Berkshire District, chairperson of the House Committee on Redistricting. We had a really good uh, Marshall Gantz uh, um, and Miles Rappaport led a great redistricting discussion we had a couple weeks ago. Um, and uh, he also, uh, I personally was, was excited to see you. Like my father, you have a lot to do from Suffolk. So you're a <laughs> local man, so I'm excited. So uh, with that just quick introduction, I thought what we'd do maybe is start off with, I would offer some questions to our, our panelists to kind of seed a discussion among them uh, about some of the key uh, tenets of what's worked in green banks and then also around the, the challenges. Um, and then, really, we would open it to the floor. Uh, we have about an hour, a little, little over an hour. Uh, and then at 5, uh, I think 5.30, we will then break for a reception. Um, and so uh, that's sort of the, uh, the game plan. So I think ju just to start, um, Brian, if you could kind of lay out, what, what, if you thought um, and look back, what would you say is the, sort of the one element that you found to be the most essential factor in the success of real change the way you have wrought it, uh, particularly in a political system that these days, given pushback from the federal government, you know, we've seen the, the rise of the states, but still quite difficult. And I'm sure that uh, that, uh, that the, the kind of representative could talk about how difficult it is even in Massachusetts. What, what do you think was kind of the one element or two elements, you know, that really led to success? And what did they change over time? Or, or were you able to go back to the well of what worked as this evolved? Yeah, so so good question. I mean, I, I think it's the same answer for both, mm -hmm. and it, I think it comes down to people, mm -hmm. and, and it comes down to different kinds of people. So uh, when you think about innovation in the Green Bank, I mean, you're talking about two leaders who had an idea, uh, Reed Hunt, the uh, chairman of the Coalition for Green Capital, uh, Dan Esty, who was a student oh, yeah. at Harvard, uh, professor now at Yale. Yes. Um, both of them, back in 2009, had an idea uh, through the Waxman-Markey bill of trying to capitalize a national green bank, the Clean Energy Development Authority. Uh, and when the national climate bill didn't pass, uh, just in a federalist way, they decided, let's go to a state. Uh, Dan Esty became the commissioner of the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, and working with Reed helped to uh, change the law to create the green bank. So you had the innovators, then you had the leadership, which you really need. Uh, Governor Malloy um, took on uh, this idea and said, you know what, we're going to have to create some bipartisan support to change the institution that existed in order to become a green bank. So innovators, leadership, and then we are governed by a board of appointed officials. Uh, they are very determined and focused to shift the model from a subsidy model to one that is attracting and mobilizing more private investment through financing. So you have a governance layer. Uh, that is there to implement the leadership uh, and innovators concept. And then of course you've got staff. I mean, I think that that's what it, this all comes down to is trying to find 
awesome public servants yep. who are willing to commit their time and be very mission driven to something that's they know is outside of them, but that they can be driven by it um, and have a mentality of coming into the office every day. And it's a thank God it's Monday kind of yeah. attitude yep. uh, instead of thank God it's Friday. And sure. we're fortunate enough to have a culture and built a, a team that has that. So people mm -hmm. fundamental, you've got to have them top to bottom. Uh, and, and it takes time. And so in, in the financial services, so the private sector, what, what was their initial reaction? Because it makes sense good. to sort of, <laughs> right, so it, made, it wasn't good. Because yeah. it makes sense, right, to start, the story makes yeah. sense to start with government, yeah. right? So you had the federal approach that died. Then you had a state reaction to the dead federal approach, which makes sense. Still government-led, so as a, as a good Kennedy School faculty, I'm, I'm happy about mm -hmm. that. But but then it must have been difficult to... Well, there, there was also federal baggage, too, at the time, right. Solyndra. Yes. Right? So, so the Solyndra baggage came down to the state level, yep. and the typical Republican argument became, oh, well, you guys are Solyndra. Well, what we're doing here is they associated clean energy with Solyndra, yeah. right or wrong, yep. right? Um, but I remember our first meeting with the uh, president of the Connecticut Bankers Association, and the first thing out of his mouth was, the last thing I want is another government-backed entity standing in front of my business. Yeah. And I said, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to get your capital into this market segment mm -hmm. so that you can help these customers reduce their energy burden because they weren't in the business of lending to, to energy customers. So mm -hmm. we started there, mm -hmm. and fortunately, over the course of the last four or five years, we've built really good relationships with our local lenders, and we're creating business for them. These are good customers. Uh, they're providing affordable uh, financing to enable them to uh, make clean energy improvements, and uh, they're now bought in. And so, was it one tipping? Was it sort of one tipping point? Was it one larger bank, or did you start off with good a question. kind of small? Yeah, like, like, like every work? state has its kind of yeah. anchor banks, yeah. and we were fortunate enough to work with one of those anchor banks in our structure, mm -hmm. where uh, we created a lease program. We brought them in to provide debt into the structure. They did very well in the structure. And after that fund, a $100 million fund had closed, they said, you know what, we like this clean energy asset class, we're going to create a division within our bank to start investing in clean energy projects. They're now in wind projects, fuel cell projects, that's exactly what we're trying to right. do. And they're now trying to do that regionally. So hmm. um, it, 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 it took some time, um, but uh, we were able to get there. And so, that, but so then now, when they just, just a last thought on that. So now, how do they view your bank, in a sense, as they grow into it? They view you sort of in terms of the capital stack. I mean, do they view you as different or as same to what they're building? Yeah, no. So I think they view us as a partner. You know, I think they see us as having feet on the ground and a hand on, you know, the pulse of what's happening in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And if there are transactions where we feel like a microgrid transaction or something right. that's unusual that yeah. may be out of their, yep. their not standardized, zone, yep. not standardized. They, they see our involvement in helping them get involved as important to that. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think they look at us as a partner uh, to alleviating some of the perceived risk that they may have uh, in the market. Right. So then the question, at least in my mind, then turns to, so Paul, given that narrative overlaid on the, the, the lovely commonwealth that we all live in today, and I grew up in myself, uh, do you see, is it, is it similar? Do you think there's a similar set of stakeholders and a similar pathway, or is it different, or how do you view that? Yeah, no, I, I think there's a similar set of stakeholders, and I right. think we have similar benefits if this legislation comes to fruition and the bank is created, but I, uh, I don't know what the initial opposition was, but I think the biggest thing we fight right now in Massachusetts is the price tag. Because even in liberal Massachusetts, 
uh, yeah. as socially progressive as we might be, we're not actually tax and choosers. We're not actually right. out there uh, giving money away. And so when you talk about a bank that probably and realistically needs $100 million or so to, right. you know, to get off the ground, to get things started and, and do so in a successful way, when you're facing shortfalls and revenue gaps, this isn't the first place you want to spend it, even though by investing this $100 million, I think it would pay for itself tenfold over the next couple of years. But just right. getting that initial investment has been the, uh, the yeah. biggest sticking point. So the so anchor, far. so one of the things you're doing, so, so there is no, so there is no real anchor bank uh, in your mind that could step in as that critical private sector first step, let's say. And, and, and the other thing is, talk, definitely pump your, your, your legislation today. So you should talk about what you've introduced and, and yeah, the sure. logic behind so, it. So originally there was a bill for commercial pace, uh, which is a, yep. a system of bonding for renewable energy projects. And people in my district were excited about it. There's a lot of, I, I live out in Western Massachusetts, so uh, green energy is the big thing. We've got a lot of open space. We want to keep it that way. We love the environment. Yeah. People were upset at the time a pipeline for natural gas was being proposed, and they found out in the PACE bill that natural gas was one of the clean energies. And so I went to the senator, the former Senator Joyce, who had filed the bill, and I said, um, a lot of people in my, my area have a problem with the natural gas language. Any way we can modify that when you refile it in the new session, and just take the natural gas stuff out. And he's like, no, I, I like the natural gas stuff. He was, yeah. he was really tied to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, in the legislature, you try to be collegial, you try to have a team sure. effort. Sure. And so I didn't want to file just the same thing, but a different version of it. Yep. So we started exploring, well, what else is out there to help promote these renewable energy projects, get solar off the ground, that kind of thing. And uh, my constituents and house council and my staff pointed me in the direction of the Coalition for Green Capital. We found out more about what was going on in Connecticut and a couple of other states. And I thought, wow, that would be something awesome to file here as well. And so I only filed this for the first time in 2015 in the last legislative session. Mm -hmm. And the legislative process last year, there was a lot of energy around energy bills. Mm -hmm. And we ended up passing, the Senate passed a, a version of its energy bill in July of 15. The House passed a different version that was much scaled down, mm -hmm. relating really to solar energy mm -hmm. in uh, November of 2015. Mm -hmm. And then the Senate passed another version 2016 and it all culminated in a omnibus energy bill and in the omnibus energy bill mm -hmm. that came out last July we included the pace language mm -hmm. with the natural gas stuff mm -hmm. and uh, the Green Bank did not make it through and so now here we, we're going for the second time which isn't a big deal in Massachusetts usually a bill even is, 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 okay. no matter how great the merits are it's at least six years three sessions before you get anything like that accomplished and with C pace it's supposed to be cited in mass development agency, but nothing's really happened yet. And so to me, these things complement each other well. If we get the Green Bank passed, that could be somewhere CPACE could ultimately be housed. But again, as, as, as we look, and it's still relatively early in our legislative session, right. the question that keeps coming up is, well, why pass it if we're not gonna give you $100 million and you know, we're not exactly bleeding money right now. So. Right. And so, and the Green Bank, though, was pulled out of it, is what you're saying. Out of the omnibus bill the omnibus. last why? session. Why was that? You don't know. If I know, it wouldn't happen. Yeah, right. <laughs> you got it. And the CPACE was not uh, capitalized in the exactly. bill. Yeah. Exactly. So um, they're going to have to uh, uh, develop the same kind of private sector uh, partnerships that Connecticut mm -hmm. did in order to uh, right. you know, develop that as a financial product. That's that's a major hurdle for Massachusetts uh, CPACE. Yeah. So that's this. Perfect. So I was going to turn to you. So, given given your your uh, t 
tireless support of all of our work at the Ash Center, you've seen lots of, in it, hopefully, innovative local governments receiving these awards, right? These innovation yeah. in American government. So if, could you talk a little bit about what have you found, what's the thread or, or two threads that run through that kind of innovative local government that usually does have to be the catalyst that then draws in private sector resources and, and pivot banks that are anchor banks? I mean, what, what have you learned? Hopefully we've, we've given you some opportunity to see. Yeah, one of the things that we always talk about when we're evaluating the, uh, the award, uh, the potential the awardees yeah. is sort of like, what's the role for government here? Exactly. You know? And um, over the years, you know, we have seen a lot of these uh, public-private partnerships. And I think that, you know, one of the things that uh, Brian and I were talking about is the um, public-private partnerships are, are they have some tensions built into them, yes. right? They can be very powerful because you're harnessing the power of the civil economy. Um, and you're also, uh, you know, harnessing the ability of government to do those nice things like, um, like jump-starting markets and leading by example and um, uh, developing a consumer confidence and standards of practice, all of which they've done at the, uh, at the Green Bank. All those are very important. And we've had awardees over the years in the energy sector that have yeah. done all of those things. Um, the, uh, uh, one awardee in the 90s was the um, Power Options Program, which is now, um, that got uh, kind of spun off when the state authority that it was under got uh, put into mass development during the uh, recession. So it's, it's kind of its own nonprofit right now, which is actually a really good model to, uh, you know, we've seen some of these over the years where you have a, uh, a successful government program and they kind of graduate to sort of being a, um, a nonprofit. Um, or you get these hybrid organizations like the uh, Vermont uh, Energy Investment Corporation, which is uh, not really a government agency, it's a nonprofit, but it is funded by a systems benefit charge. So you get all these different kind of flavors over yeah. the years of these public-private mm -hmm. partnerships. I think the tension, if you're going to make it successful, is something we used to talk about uh, when I was running the state's clean energy agency here, mm -hmm. is what's success uh, in these partnerships? You know, you really want to graduate, and that's one of the things that really stood out about the Connecticut Green Bank, mm -hmm. is that, that there was a you know, there was a graduation, there was like an off-ramp to um, the role of government. And that's a kind of a built-in tension for, for these programs is, is like, mm -hmm. you know, how do you, how do you navigate that? And um, I see Brad Swing is out in the audience here who um, uh, works for the city of Boston. He has done an amazing job over the year of graduating a lot of uh, city initiatives uh, in the same way. Sort of working, sort of, I mean, I think almost from the university perspective, we do the same. We're trying to do the same, hopefully, which is sort of working yourself out of a job in that yep. sense. Yeah, exactly. That's right. that tension. When the private sector says to you, you know, thanks, we got it. Yeah, you know, then you succeeded. That's, that's good. good. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. It, it Sometimes it drives your boss crazy when you're on the public side because right. they can't like take credit for right, anything right. after that. Right. But, um, we do we do a good, pretty good job here. <laughs> <laughs> we, we always say you know, the secret is you great, bring great kids in, don't uh, sort of spoil them and then take credit after they leave or anything. That's sort of the secret of the, of the entire enterprise. Um, 
that, that's helpful. Relatedly, Jeff, to you, um, and this is something that Caitlin, or whether she had, she, had, she, she kindly uh, sketched some questions that were really great. One of them that she sketched that I thought was great is, what is, it, you know, what is the ultimate, from macro perspective, from your perspective, what is the ultimate goal of your organization, right? Is it, is it, is it that, do you view it as a temporary, um, uh, really government-led catalyst that, that once um, certain uh, systemic changes have been made, then will be, the government will step back nationally, really, in a way, mm -hmm. at the state level, across the, government, the, the, the country, step back and, and we'll have this a fully private model that in, internalizes external costs and things mm -hmm. of that sort? Or do you think there are only certain states that where we can really create these hubs and they'll always just be at that state level? I mean, how do you, how do you analyze that? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something that comes up a lot. Is yeah. do you, should there be green banks in every single exactly. state? Right. Um, you know, should these things put themselves out of business, literally? Um, right. You know, I think there's like stages of evolution to that. And right. You know, there's a, how do I say it? There's like a, a good, clean answer of saying, yes, the purpose of green banks is to demonstrate to private lenders and capital sources that these this is an exciting market opportunity where you can make a lot of money and there's actually market potential to invest here. Exactly. And that public capital won't be needed once they recognize that. And that, that's good. sort of a nice, clean story. But, the, you know, there's two sort of difficult realities to how that actually works, or maybe three. One is, clean energy markets are not like monolithic, they're very, very segmented. So there might be a specific product or an area like rooftop solar loans that you can address that and then you move on to the next one. So that's one thing. Um, the other is that there are certain functions that, um, boy, they're really hard for for-profit businesses to really serve them well that, that, that sort of have to exist. So one of them is a really good example is like CPACE administration. So CPACE is, Commercial property assessed clean energy is this construct whereby um, a building owner can finance a clean energy upgrade and then repay the loan through, repay, repay that financing through a property tax lien on the building. It's a mechanism to create security so that the lender feels comfortable putting money into a project that otherwise is just unsecured lending. Yeah. Uh, it sounds sort of like a nice, elegant answer, yeah. but it's immensely complex to actually administer that. And there are there are a lot of private businesses that are trying to run those in the commercial sector for commercial buildings and really struggling to figure out how do you do it in a, in a way that they can make a profit without destroying the economics of the projects. And I would point to the Connecticut Green Bank as by far the best example of an organization in the country that's running the CPACE program. Um, and they're able to do it because they're not seeking a profit. They realize that there's like a public need. Um, and also just general like, deal origination, it's really, really hard to go out and finance and find lots of small disaggregated projects. You've got to train contractors, you've got to maintain quality. There's these things that sort of lend themselves to a little bit of public purpose. And then the, the third part, is, um, which is maybe the simplest answer, is um, if, we're, if this is a 9 ball ballgame, we're at the top of the first. Like, mm -hmm. I hope we have to worry about the questions of whether green banks yeah. should populate the entire Yeah, like, like if we can get them in 50 states, then right. let's figure out um, whether they shouldn't exist after that. Because right. the reality is the amount of capital that needs to be deployed in the space is, so is monstrous. Exactly. And energy is inherently local. Yeah. Um, there is a natural fit to having state and local institutions, and whether they are 
government, public, public, or nonprofit, which is what we're starting to see, that sort of off-ramp you're describing is, is a model that others are exploring, um, there's value to having sort of local market familiarity. So on that point then, so how do you divide and conquer it? You know, mm -hmm. so your division of labor, you look across and you the, the landscape and you can target certain states that you think are ripe for the picking, let's mm -hmm. say. But then you also might get diluted, what one could say, by looking at international markets. Yeah. Right? So how do you how do you um, deal with that? Yeah, well, so the first, uh, the simplest answer is that as a nonprofit organization with seven people working in I don't know, right. five countries and twenty states, is we just <laughs> go wherever we can demand. find like demand. There's demand, yeah. right. um, which isn't a, a useful answer for you. Um, <laughs> you know, the the true answer is that. Um, it's a combination of things, and we, our organization's gotten better at identifying this. One is, um, are there local partners, which ideally are sort of within government or adjacent to government, or sort of related entities that want to be a part of this? Because, you know, we're, as I said, we're a nonprofit. We, we're based in D.C. and New York. If we're working in Massachusetts, Connecticut, or Nevada, places where we're working, we need local partners. We need someone there who wants to sort of carry the water to create something like this and stand behind it. Um, and sometimes it's a legislator and sometimes it's a, a sort of a host institution. Um, so we have to always have a partner, that's critical. Um, another piece is the energy markets have to actually have the economics and profile that can warrant clean energy right. investment, um, which can mean a couple of things. There, have to be, there has to be a policy environment that like allows clean energy. So an example is like in states in the south, I can think it's like Alabama or Georgia, it's, right. it's effectively like illegal to put solar panels on your roof and sell that power back to the grid. Um, so that's a barrier. Um, but also the energy economics have to be right. I mean, clean energy is cost effective, meaning it's like cheaper than what's coming from the grid in lots of parts of the country, right. um, but not everywhere. Exactly. You know, for instance, I mean, in Massachusetts, man, like solar is, especially with the sort of subsidy policies here, solar is cost effective yep. sort of everywhere. Um, so it's very easy. So we have to target those opportunities. Um, on the international side, which has sort of grown very quickly in real time, um, the dem there's demand coming for this for two reasons. One is post-Paris, mm -hmm. all of these countries have made commitments and they're all asking, wait, how on earth do we do this? Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny, if you actually read the, a lot of the national um, commitments. determined commitments, yeah. a lot of them have contingencies in there that say, we'll do this, but we'll do a lot more if there's sort of like financial assistance That's right. from yeah. the other parts, yeah. other parts of the world. And so the other piece of you know why there's demand for sort of green banks, for instance, we have a project in South Africa right now, is that um, the, uh, the existing sort of architecture of climate finance through multilateral development banks is something that local governments and countries are, are thinking, how do we sort of bring more control to our own sort of energy futures and investment making decisions? Right. And so how can we, for instance, in, uh, in South Africa, thinking how can we sort of have our own institution that is fun maybe funded by our own government and by other multilateral yep. development banks in, in, in Europe, for instance, but that the decisions about investments are made locally. And, and uh, Middle East, have you done any work yet in the Saudi, the thing in the Saudis particularly that are trying to trying to pivot off of obviously massively fossil-based economy? 
energy footprint? Yeah, we, we haven't. Okay. Yeah, we have ourselves. Um, the the OECD in Paris has done a lot of work around green banks, and the first time they ever like did a publication on green banks, they named Mazdar City yeah, as right. sort of like a, or Mazdar is like a green yeah. bank like thing. And um, in some ways it is, in some ways it isn't. Um, you know, the notion of using public funds to invest in finance, clean energy, isn't entirely novel. Sure. Um, and this frankly a debate sort of within the green bank community of like how closely should we define and sort of constrain this concept to be one specific thing mm -hmm. as opposed yep. to sort of yep. letting allow a thousand flowers bloom. Um, but I think the, the places where we've seen the most interest in this concept are um, sort of Southeast Asia mm -hmm. and uh, Latin America, basically mm -hmm. kind of parts of the world where there is already a fairly robust um, development banking system mm -hmm. where it's not a matter of building whole new institutions, it's a matter of either sort of Pivoting those institutions or even creating like internal divisions that yeah. operate like green banks. And you know, the last thought on this is it's taken, I, I don't have a background in international development finance, which has been a big handicap because it took me a while to realize, like, oh, green banks are just what everybody else in the world calls development banking. Yeah. Like, yeah. this yeah. is what development banking yeah. is. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. so, just in the US. Yeah, like right. when yeah, I was in right. Johannesburg yeah. a weeks ago, we were sitting Good down point. with all the commercial banks to pitch to them the idea of partnering. And what Brian said, like, the Connecticut Bankers Association just sort of flat out against it. We talked to five banks and like they just said, yeah, this sounds great. We do this all the time. Let's do more of it. Like the notion That's how they do their financial innovation. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, was, yeah. it was like second nature to them. Yeah. It was a totally different conversation. Yeah. So really a question to all of you, right? This sort of, sort of half elephant in the room. I don't know if it's elephant mm -hmm. or a donkey or an alien. Or, so yeah. you've got the Trump issue, right? So, so I like donkey. Okay, we'll go down. Or whatever he happens to the, the, the sort of flavor of the of the of the hour form. So, given um, the Trump administration's series of kind of changing stances related to um, clean tech, green tech, climate, what does that mean? I mean, I, I'm always interested. The federal government, to me, has not really played a very large role in the energy sector. Save for certain issues like um, the Secretary of Energy uh, approving um, export of, of LNG, as an example, terminals, those types of things. So there are certain areas in trade you know, where there's a federal role. Of, you, it, there is some federal role. In other areas, I find it's there's really no there's no. We often we get this discussion often with our Chinese counterparts, right? What is the U.S. energy policy? Right? There really is no. Uh, cl uh, by, you know, quite clearly, there is no U.S. energy policy. Having said that. I'm just interested in how the administration has affected the way you think about, uh, other than maybe doubling down, which is what we sort of talked about, green banks. I mean, is there any way you can, any of you can talk about, is there a coherent even response, right, from the administration? Because the, the last piece is, I've, I've, I've watched Ernie Moniz, right, who, who actually taught me back in the PhD days, who then went to become Secretary of Energy, has now come back and now is setting up his own uh, group to try to bring sort of philanthropic capital and uh, financial capital, you know, uh, sort of market-driven capital, to try to fill in uh, for Phil Jordan reports on you know, national solar census reports, things that the DOE used to do, that the DOE clearly is no longer doing. So there are people like him who are clearly reacting to a vacuum or a retrenchment. Um, so that's one way I'm seeing a shift. 
But I'm just wondering what you guys, how you guys view it. So I'll take a stab at that. I, it may not be the answer you're looking for. I, I actually think that um, sort of the, there are some very distressing things, obviously, that have been, been going on. I think those are going to be short-lived because I think that the stuff that's important, like the EIA, is going to come back. Um, I think that in the longer term, though, um, there, in terms of the Green Bank construct, there's, there's two parts to the Green Bank construct. There's the capitalization, which is public capital, and then there's innovation in the financial sector. Mm -hmm. And you know, I can say this because I used to be an investment banker, financial sector innovation has not happened at a very right. rapid pace. Uh, certainly not at the pace that we need it no to question. happen for, to combat climate change. Um, so the capitalization part, on the other hand, as utility companies, uh, we're, we're basically dependent on system benefits charges for yep. most, <laughs> most of what happens in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, in Vermont, in you know, basically anywhere you want to talk about. Um, I think that's going away. I really do. I think that as the utilities change their business models, the system benefits charge is going to go away. Mm -hmm. So. Which, you know, so we're doing two things. We're doing financial innovation on the private sector side, yeah. and we're, we're doing, we're looking at the sort of the end of the capitalization um, by public capital. Mm -hmm. That, I think, that that's is the sort of the regardless big, of regardless of administration, I think that's the big challenge that's coming Good. up. Makes sense. And it, what's scary to me, though, is, oh, and, and obviously I'm sure you guys have, I'd like to hear your, your, your take is also when trying to think about innovation in space, I always come back against the issue of utilities in, in the sense that they're just incredibly conservative by, by definition. So, so have you found, they're, but you live it, so. Yeah, they're yeah, doing so, a lot of stuff. Okay, okay. Honestly, they, this is an existential crisis for them. Yeah. They get it, yeah, okay, they okay. get it. Uh, EEI <coughs> is just about to hire their first uh, clean energy markets person. Green Mountain Power in Vermont okay. is actively competing head-to-head -head against the Vermont Energy Investment Corporation that does um, energy efficiency. I mean, they, they're they shifting their business okay. models because... Because they just see that, that I mean, yeah. you, know, I mean you, you have to start paying your customers. It's not like a business model, right? That's right. Like right. right. Yeah. So we, they realize there's a change. But the public has really been depending on being able to, you know, get our capitalization, all the, the capital for all this great stuff that we've been doing, you know, mm -hmm. from the current utility business model. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I think on that, sort of connecting your two thoughts, yeah. um, you know, when we are working around the country talking about green bags, the first and last question is always, how are we going to capitalize this? Where is it going to come from? And, sure. you know, we point to Connecticut, we point to New York, and they use system benefit charge money, and the states either say, um, but we don't have that, or we're using it for efficiency rebates, and we're not changing that, and that's okay. Um, and so there's this question of where's the money going to come from? Right. And we spent a long time, long time, trying to unlock various sources of federal funds that actually exist, mm -hmm. um, whether it's the Department of Energy's loan program office mm -hmm. that provides loan guarantees, yep, or sure. like USDA's rural utility service programs, even EPA, clean water funds technically can be used for this sort of stuff. Um, and it's just not a system that's designed to be tweaked in that way. Like, you can sit for hours with folks in these federal offices and they're just very constrained in how they can yes. deploy their funds, even if you try everything you can to sort of fit a square peg in a round hole. Yep. And so we, um, we tried to, you know, the federal Green Bank legislation has been introduced multiple times now, um, similar to what you were describing, it's sort of, you know, you gotta keep pushing the uh, rock up the hill. Um, 
but the sort of strategy that the collective green bank space saw was in 2017, let's frame this as part of an infrastructure bill. We know there's going to be, I mean, both candidates talk about infrastructure. Yeah, that's um, why, yeah, that was my next question. And it's, everyone's talking about public-private partnerships, which makes a lot of sense, but when you know public-private partnerships for like building roads is actually really hard because there's no revenue stream, and so you're sort of right. talking about putting tolls on every, tolls. Yeah, right, every but, single Yeah, right. but there is a form of infrastructure that actually is totally conducive to that, and it's called energy, and mm -hmm. just chosen to finance it in, in very specific ways that never involve the public sector. It's all right. utility-run, right. but except for actually one-seventh of the country, like TVA, that's yeah, sure. public, just and nobody sort of things about those things. Sure. So we tried to position it as part of that. And the election went the way it wanted, and we thought, well, maybe we can still position it that way. And we sort of had thoughts like maybe, you know, infrastructure is third in line. By September or October, there'll be an infrastructure bill. And so we know, well, that's definitely not going to happen. Um, and so, long story short, no, counting great. on the federal government is not useful. But yeah. to the point you made, mm -hmm. there is this surge of interest from the philanthropic community to. Yeah not just make grants, but start using their own investment sort of yes. balance sheets and portfolios Correct. to invest directly into this kind of stuff. And yeah. so Brian and other organizations, there's an organization called the New York City Energy Efficiency Corporation, which is effectively mm -hmm. a green bank, are getting program-related investment from foundations. And we think there's a big opportunity to sort of fill the gap where, you know, the federal government's not going to play a role here anytime soon. Right. States, if, you know, if they have money, they're very protective of it, yeah. and, and a lot of them don't. Um, so how do we find sort of alternative sources of funds that sort of are public purpose and mission driven in nature to yes. come into the space? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a small group here in Cambridge, uh, I don't know if there's anyone here from it, called Prime Coalition. Have you ever run across these guys? Right, so that's sort of, I think, one aspect, right, when they're trying to position. I was talking about when you teach about energy, it's sort of, there's two issues. It's not just the value of death, which is what people a lot of focus on, mm -hmm. a lot of these venture guys. But then the one that's often termed the Darwinian sea, so that in order really to scale truly, you then have to survive not just that value of death, which is actually very specific, hard, but very specific. then there's a much longer, larger scale, right. major capital Darwinian sea, which is always a nice kind of contrast to this right. desert of Mojave Desert. Of this. <clears throat> and so, like, Prime Coalition is trying to deal really with the former, and then there's others that are not trying to deal with the latter. So, yeah, I, I, it, yeah, it excites but, me. And then the other, but the other, the other, uh, Looking at the time, I guess. The other interesting issue to me is there is so China. There are there's uh, there's there is significant interest in China from different capital holders to deploy capital in the United States for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, let, just simply, even just uh, from the perspective of the continued devaluation of the RMB and the and, and, and arbitrage, right? Let alone all the other reasons, right? The 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 do you ever view? Uh, how do you have any view on on foreign capital, whether it's Chinese or other? Uh, it's it's been difficult, right? Despite John Kerry really pushed a, a big infrastructure fund idea that would have a lot of foreign capital mm -hmm. in it, um, not touching the grid, and you know, various caveats, obviously regarding national security. Do you see foreign capital all playing a role in what your in, in that it, the issue of just tranches of capital and infrastructure, or not at all? It's not something we've thought about. Um, it's certainly plausible. I would sort of imagine that the whole world is feeling like would feel pretty icky about that mm -hmm. because they just don't want us like basically we're turning our backs on them. Why would they want to put their money here? Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe there's well, international yeah. philanthropy that wants to play a role there, or mm -hmm. as you said, maybe it's just no, yeah. it's just market-driven capital. Um, yeah, you know, I think if if I were a foreign investor, I'd just be looking at the U.S. and just 
Uh, a total policy uncertainty about what can be yes. done here in energy. Do you guys have any thoughts just on this whole? Well, the uncertainty. I mean, when us in the state government, and we look at the federal government, it's beyond energy. It's for every single subject. Not only can we yeah. not predict what the federal government can do, they actually send constantly contradictory items out. And so when you're trying to budget, when you're trying to plan ahead, it's, it's completely impossible. And you, you mentioned the idea of double down. Yeah. So when it's something social policy, yes, we have that option. Sure. We can, we can double exactly. down. We can say, yeah, Fair come, 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 come get come us. You know? yeah. But when it comes to anything that has to do with money, uh, health care, our budget is so uncertain right now because we have no idea yeah. what is going to be the amount of health care money we're getting in a few years. Right. And, and, and when you look at that, facing the possibility of losing a billion to two billion dollars, so pet projects that, again, are great ideas, will result in investment and, and, and good things for the economy here in Massachusetts. But $100 million, you just can't find the will to spend it because we don't know what's going to happen. There's so much uncertainty. So I, I imagine it must it must be extending to people that want to invest. I, the stock yeah. market's going up. I don't know how because yeah, I, don't, I, don't. <laughs> I don't know what they think is going to happen. because I don't. Know how but then what do you do? Do you, do, you, do you then double down on rainy day funds? I mean, what do you do as a legislator from the state? Level. We, we have, have to, to always be in balance, yeah. right? Right. Our, our budget must always be in balance, and so you try to find the most important things. Um, sometimes there's things you have to fight defense. The governor proposed some some healthcare stuff that wasn't very popular and didn't go anywhere. So now we're trying to figure out. So where are you going to save that two hundred million dollars? Then right. you don't want to kick these people off of such programs, right. but you need to save the money somewhere. Yeah. So so it's it's a lot of um, trying to come up with something innovative. It extends to every sector that we deal with. So there's a couple of external challenges I think the federal government's bringing to states today. One okay. is the solar tariff, yep. right? So yep. if you're following this discussion on a U.S. company file on the suit uh, in on foreign trade, right? <laughs> and now back in 2010, I had actually been in a meeting with a CEO of a large Chinese solar manufacturing uh -huh. company, Jifan Zhao, Trina oh, Solar, yeah, yeah. and I asked him the question. I said, "When are you going to invest in manufacturing in the U.S.?" Yeah. Yeah. What state is, is conducive to you doing that? And we ended up creating a, a case study competition of a number of business schools across, uh, actually throughout the world, that compete on advising Jafan Zhao on where he should locate. There were a couple of uh, universities that said Massachusetts. Yep. There were interesting Excellent. things happening at the time with, uh, what was the solar company here that we had? Evergreen. Evergreen, Evergreen yeah, sure. That ended yeah, up yeah. being taken down, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. So, but but it's interesting when you look at what's happened. Right I mean, here. the Chinese, <laughs> the, the German technology companies yeah. were lost. The American companies, Obama was trying to save it with Solyndra, yeah. I mean, yeah, that yeah, was, but yet Trump is about to make a decision to, to tax imported solar yeah. PV systems that are going to create disruption in the market, right? So it's, it's a bit of irony. And then the other thing is just the treatment of nuclear and coal. Um, you know, in Connecticut, we have a power plant um, locally in Waterford that creates a lot of jobs. Uh, being positioned as a zero emitting source, mm -hmm. high reliable power, mm -hmm. um, and it's just you know you see it, uh, Massachusetts, uh, Vermont, California. When the nuclear issue comes up, it throws policies into a, yes. a tailspin. Yeah. Whether it's energy or in Connecticut, it's the broader budget. You mm -hmm. know, it's become a bigger point of conversation, mm -hmm. and the federal government's feeding right into that. Sure. Um, so. It, it just causes uncertainty, but I think our goal is to try to enable the market to be able to withstand and become more resilient to that. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, despite the uncertainty. Exactly. So we've, you know, I think we've got 30 minutes left. We, we've, we've put on the table a whole bunch of different issues, uh, both policy, 
sort of sectoral, um, local and federal, and even international. So just to open to the floor, um, we have, uh, Caitlin's gonna kindly go around. Uh, just, if you could just introduce yourself, um, obviously, maybe to the group more than to this panel, uh, and then uh, happy to take questions. I'm Brad Swain. I'm Brad Swain, Director of Energy Policy and Programs for the City of Boston, and a 2004 graduate of the Kennedy School New Career uh, Program. Great to be back. Good man. Um, thrilled to see your bill. Read it on the way over. Um, uh, my question is really about procurement authority for government. If we're going to sort of be developing the pipeline of projects that would be using the bank. Um, you know, we have like very specific procurement authority in the Commonwealth for political subdivisions to qualify energy service companies for performance contracts. And we are using that in Boston. We're underway with a 256 facility comprehensive performance contract. We think it'll be over $100 million of self-funded work. Uh, I have some comments about the challenge of capacity building within government to be able to make those decisions responsibly. It's been by a factor of 10 the hardest thing I've ever gotten going. Wow. I mean, really hard. And I thought that would be my proof of concept of using project finance uh, essentially for energy improvements of municipal facilities. I now have Mayor Walsh has authorized that we've filed in front of city council a home rule petition that we hope will get your attention. Uh, Senator Borey will carry it once the council passes it, but it's to grant public-private partnership procurement authority for a specific district energy microgrid that we're trying to build in the Marine Park mm -hmm. on the South Boston waterfront. So. My question is kind of the chicken and egg thing for a government official, which is like, how do we how do we look ahead towards making sure that a green bank is set up right? But how do we also get government capable, you know, first of all, authorized to procure projects, but then that capacity issue of being able to responsibly embed major decisions around public-private partnerships? Because as I said, this is really hard work for us. Mm -hmm. So the first component is obviously legislatively. When we file a bill, it's a long, it's a tedious process, and there's a reason for it, because we're making the law. We're not you know, doing something trivial. And so that's why every, every bill has to go to committee, every committee has to report, people can call us. So my advice first is people that have ideas about either where this should be housed, how the language should be changed, now is the time to get in contact. So I would love to sit down with you sometime yeah. Uh, not here, um, and, and talk more about it. Because when you're in the legislature, what you're trying to do, and, and this is why laws so often become so vague, you're trying to find a coalition to get to 81, which is the majority, and 21 in the Senate, and then to get something that the governor will be able to sign. So in my mind, I'm very flexible as to where this ultimately will be housed. I have my ideas that are in this bill, but if it's a better idea for this to be housed in the Treasury, that's okay with me. It's, it's, it's a better idea to be under the Secretary of Energy. You know, there's, there's a lot of places to, to look at that. And then once, if and when this is actually passed into law, and then the regulatory authorities are having their way with, you know, how, how is this going to be put into practice? It's another great place. So, so I, I, we should talk sometime. Maybe yeah. it would be, be really helpful to me. Congratulations on your work. Sounds yeah. great. You know, the one other thing I'd add is, at least from the, you know, from the perspective of green banks wanting to finance clean energy projects in various sectors, um, I don't want a green bank, but I think about it, it, 
the municipal sector seems very obviously to be the hardest by far uh, to finance. Like giving a loan to a, uh, a household to finance energy efficiency upgrades is really straightforward. Giving a loan to a government to do what you're trying to do is really complicated. Um, and I don't. I guess the I'm trying to think of green banks that have done that. Well, the Rhode Island Infrastructure Bank yeah, has, has done this yeah. to their efficient buildings fund in a really innovative way. Yeah. I can't speak to the specific procurement rules that they use there, but it was a very clever like aggregation structure where they financed yeah. 15 different municipal building projects at once, basically. Our performance contract will be debt financed, and the credit rating agencies love this kind of debt. They just eat it up. The, um, I, one of the reasons why the uh, Rhode Island Infrastructure Bank was able to do that is because they have um, a lot of institutional capacity because they run the revolving loan funds for um, Safe Drinking Water Act and Clean Water Act. So those are municipal right. you know, loans. Right. So that's a very nice model. And they just took that model mm -hmm. and just applied it to their efficiency. So that might be a, a good piece of legislation to look at. Other questions? Yes. Hi, um, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, Eric Grunebaum, I'm working with Renew Energy Partners, which is based in Boston. Uh, we have a, a $40 million fund of impact investment money. And there's it seems like there's quite a bit of demand from, from the impact and the office community uh, to invest in these things, as, as uh, covered a little bit. Um, I think the, the key thing for us is finding uh, situate, first of all, finding buildings and, and uh, facilities owners of all kinds that are interested in, in having, uh, doing these upgrades but don't have the capital themselves. Uh, we do it as a third party owner. Um, and I think one of the keys for governmental and quasi-governmental organizations is uh, whether credit enhancements can be brought to the table uh, to unlock that money. There, there's quite a bit of demand, but having those credit enhancements, whether that's CPACE or loan loss reserves or other ways to really uh, leverage government uh, money to increase the, the uh, private investment. Uh, so I'm curious what the panel uh, has to say about that. So we have um, two uh, foundation-related investments that are currently in play and one potential large commercial bank doing the PRI, which is the program-related investment. But the first one was the MacArthur Foundation, uh, who's very interested in trying to ensure that the clean energy economy can be, be made accessible to multifamily affordable housing um, um, segment. And uh, they were looking at putting a $5 million program-related investment into the Connecticut Green Bank, given the strength of our balance sheet, uh, 15 years at 1% money. So that's really inexpensive impact funds. But we, um, given our kind of statutory structure and what we include in our contracts, we have a, a gift affidavit in our, every contract that we sign that says to an investor that uh, your board members can't invest in any political candidates in this state. And the MacArthur Foundation, based out of Chicago, was like, why would we ever sign something like that? So uh, they said, we're not going to, therefore, put our money in you. Well, we said, OK, well, why don't you put it in a local community development financial institution, and we will guarantee that $5 million uh, based on the strength of our balance sheet. So we ended up doing that. And now we're underwriting transactions in the multifamily space. And one of the important things there is that sometimes to get to the energy improvements, you have to get through the health and safety issues of those properties. Uh, asbestos, lead, you know, repairing a roof, uh, yeah. all, the, all those sorts of things. You have to break through that in order to get to the energy improvement. Mm -hmm. The second one was um, uh, a program-related investment from the Kresge Foundation. 
Uh, they are very interested in resilience and how can in these multifamily properties uh, battery storage and high reliable power be embedded in these systems along the coast of Connecticut in the event of uh, some uh, natural disaster taking effect. So uh, we've got a $3 million PRI from Kresge for us to uh, put storage technology into hmm. these units. Um, so those are the two. And then the last one is a commercial bank. We're actually uh, with our colleagues in um, Rhode Island. Uh, they hosted the ACEEE Finance Forum uh, two years ago. And uh, we had a panel. Jeff was leading the panel of green banks. We had the, new, the largest green bank, the New York Green Bank. We had the newest, Rhode Island. Uh, we had the first nonprofit green bank in Michigan and Connecticut. And after that panel, this large commercial bank came up to us and said, as a bank, we should be investing in green banks. And we're now structuring a deal whereby they will be providing to us a large sum of money to loan out into different market segments. Um, it's the community development arm of the bank. Um, so I think we're gonna start to see this kind of movement of foundations and large commercial banks trying to figure out whether it's Community Reinvestment Act credits or, you know, there's no telling what will happen with CRA going forward. That's another external kind of effect, but uh, uh, we're optimistic. But I, if you step back and you look at this capital mobilization question, I mean, the problem is so large. Like, I think if you, if you put a per capita number on what level of investment is required per person per year to meet the UN Sustainable Development Goals, it is a large number. It's like $800 per person. Our predecessor in Connecticut did $8 per person per year. We've uh, taken that to an order of magnitude. We're now at $80 per person per year, but we now have to go another order of magnitude uh, in order to hit and, and be you know, within stone's throw of achieving that, just to give you a sense of scale. So mm -hmm. it's gonna require government to act smarter to enable and mobilize more private investment. Otherwise, we're just not gonna get there. I think what's cool about the last deal specifically that Brian described, going back to your question about like the green banks sort of step out is, yeah. here's an example where rather than sort of leveraging private capital at the project level, where it's like public money from the green bank and private money comes into the project, here's private money coming straight into the green bank itself. And you right. can see that that's a way that these yes. institutions can kind of evolve. That's right. Because you know, that commercial bank basically says like, we like what you're doing, but we have no capacity or know how to actually yeah. do it. So we're we're sure to go do it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, that was a weird meeting. Yeah. I remember the meeting <laughs> at the bank. It did they like, just, just discover? I mean, they basically just did it. It occurred to them in the middle of a discussion. Well, hell, I think it did just happen. I just give it to you. This is kind of like what we do, and, and we should investigate the bank. And I remember at that meeting walking out being like, oh my God, this is a milestone moment because for the first time, somebody else is saying we, should, we want to put our money in you. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, there's a connection there, too, uh, to. There's a long history of large commercial banks investing in housing, yeah. like affordable housing, right. to get like CRA credits, right. and, and through like community development finance institutions. And those people are sort of connecting the dots that these look. Very, this looks very similar to that. Do, do you know? Let me ask you. So, is Michigan the only non-profit green bank? Well, there are many non-profits. Well, two other. Yeah. BSC yeah. is a lot like. So, kind of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so uh, I'm Nick Klein. I work with Jeff at the Coalition for Green right. Capital. Uh, nice seat, the, the city level. Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, nice seat, the New York City uh, Energy Efficiency uh, Corporation, the city level New York Green Bank. Um, is a nonprofit. It was formed in Bloomberg's office, but it, it was like one of those, uh, I think it was you that were describing a, a government body that kind of evolved into yeah. a nonprofit. Yeah. So that's a nonprofit. And then you have the Montgomery County Green Bank, okay. which was formed by legislation 
but the legislation called for the creation of an independent nonprofit that was then officially designated uh -huh. as the county's green bank. And that's coming online now. It's going to launch its, product, its first product uh, in a few months. So the majority are for profit, and there's and there's but they're increasing non profit. Well, they're, they're not for profit. Okay, so there's no, so there's no public, public quasi public, and and non profit, but there's no for there's profit. no for okay. yeah. So it, uh, on the spectrum of sort of. Uh, Maturation. So yeah. the, the first national green bank in the world was the UK Green Investment Bank. Right. Uh, yeah. From basically around the same time as the right. Connecticut Green Bank, it was created as a uh, quasi-public entity. It, right. You know, a government-owned sure. corporation. Yes. Um, it was privatized and sold to Macquarie. Uh, the transaction was yep. completed a couple of months ago. Um, so that was the first. So that's example. a privatization. Yeah, privatization. Yeah. And, you know, because it's not. Yeah. You know, whether the, that was done because it had matured and done what it needed to right. because the government just chose they don't want to do, do it anymore. anymore. But, but there's also demand from Macquarie. I mean, it wasn't as if, right? Oh, yeah. It wasn't true. Yeah. You know, Macquarie, uh, I think Macquarie saw, hey, they've built a pretty good business. I yeah. bet we can do, do this, better. we can do scale better. it, and yeah. we can do it in That's other right. places, too. Yeah, and uh, one last... Um, so it goes out. Yeah, one last thought on the, uh, the non-profit structure is... Uh, Little known fact that Nevada actually uh, yeah. passed Green Bank legislation recently uh, following the Montgomery County Green Bank model, where it essentially called for the creation of a nonprofit to serve as the state's officially designated Green Bank Got it. to be established. I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in having nonprofits play this role because um, one of the problems with having uh, them being a government agency is that you're very uh, vulnerable to being raided which has happened to all of us. Um, you're very vulnerable to changes in administration, having different priorities. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's the way democracy works. But um, it, you know, the private sector doesn't want that kind of uncertainty. Sure. Uh, and so I'm a big believer in having nonprofits play that role. The problem is the level of capitalization. I mean, yeah. that's you know, we as as Brian just said, you need a, you know, you need a lot of investment. You need a lot of capital to do it at the rate that we need to do it to combat climate change. So, you know, I, the nonprofit model is definitely a very good one, but um, I don't know that it's going to be able to scale to um, unless you know there's just yeah, a lot kind of more philanthropic. That's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, is the government going to willingly put two hundred fifty million dollars into a nonprofit versus put two hundred fifty million dollars no into way. a quasi? Yeah, yeah, no way. Yeah, you're never going to use public capital. Right. They're, they're yeah. not going to get a second shot. Right. That's right. Yeah. So it's balancing those VDIC, things. VDIC, which is a yeah. nonprofit that is given the system benefit charge, they have to clear, you know, they have to clear their books. They, it's all the money goes in and all the money goes right. out. They don't have an endowment. Right. And even then, it's like a, they're contracted. It's they not like they're, thing that they're starting up. They have a little um, ESCO kind of thing that they're starting Commons, up. Commons energy. Yeah. 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 But it's very small. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's also another piece of the Green Bank model is the public approach. So moving from a zero-based budget of money in, money out, right. to money coming in and building a balance sheet that, that sits as loans yeah. that you then, the state can, then you can leverage then. to attract private investment. I mean, I think that that's a, a fun, but it then makes you a target because, you know, we're now $190 million in assets. You're a bank. You're a bank. Yep. Other questions? Thank you. Uh, sorry, I'm Mark Blair. I work um, for Washington, D.C., the 
city, but that you have in economic development. Uh, mostly affordable housing, actually, which was mentioned. But my question is, uh, we've heard a lot about uh, financial innovation, uh, which is great. I'm curious if in any of both your experience or in other banks, um, there's a, an effort towards project innovation to reach that $800 per person uh, figure, if it was a dollar metric. Uh, maybe there are technological advances that need to take place um, to the degree that any of you can um, drive that innovation. How are you doing that? Yeah, so I mean, maybe that's maybe that's probably the difference between Connecticut and Massachusetts. You know, so I think our role is is participating very much in a clean energy finance way, financing projects of commercially available technology. What's interesting about our colleagues in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, is you've got an amazing place of innovation here where you've got a lot of entrepreneurship happening, creating the next generation of technologies that are going to solve the world's problems, right? So, so Connecticut doesn't have that, and it's part of the culture, it's part of what happens in communities, we're trying to build it. So that's an asset. The question is, can you build a green bank element on top of that innovation asset to help pull those technologies through yeah. the valley of death yeah. and then scale, so you're realizing all, all those economics. I think that that's the opportunity. And just on Washington, D.C., like, I have to say, like, so Washington, D.C. is in the process of creating a, a green bank for the D.C. Finance Authority. Mm -hmm. uh, Mayor Bowser has been incredible. As part of the process, Carter, like we went through here for the Ash Center, you know, when we were thinking about going through all your rigorous pieces and we were thinking about who we are as an organization, what we do, we discovered why, we're, why we just do what we're doing. <laughs> and, and our why came from Mario Bowser. And she said, we are creating this green bank in D.C. to enable this green economy for everybody. It's about inclusive prosperity. And for us, that became our kind of calling card for the Harvard Award was, yes, that's exactly what green banks do. Um, we're here to bring in private investment to help everybody benefit from this economy. So thank you. And, and you know, thanks to her and her team, Tommy Wells, they're just you know, we hold them in such high regard because, you know, we discovered that through all Carter's work. It's like, ah, oh, we needed to figure it out, and we, we discovered it through her. And that's great. Any other responses to that particular? I would just, just agree that um, DC, of all places, needs. So we helped design the, we've been partnering with DC government to sort of design and stand that up. And just the amount of investment that's needed there to reach the goals you have is sort of astronomical. Um, some might call your goals aspirational. Some might say they're just sort of like off the charts. But why not be? Why not shoot high? How does that fit into the sustainable energy utility in DC? How does what fit in? The Green Bay? That's set. Totally separate. Yeah, they're not. Um, yeah, they're not involved at all. Right now, I mean, we're just setting up the Green Bay. We just introduced legislation, so we don't actually have the Green Bank set up. It remains to be seen if there is any integration. But at this point, um, they're totally separate. We're, there's a lot of conversations about how to make these things work together yeah. um, because they're there, they're next to each other. They should, I mean, in the same way that, you know, the Connecticut Green Bank works really well with the utility rebate programs, the DC right. Green Bank should, I mean, the equivalent is the SEU, they should be yeah. working with each other. Yeah. So, sorry, just to follow up on that, though, because, you know, the, the, the capitalization 
uh, offered right now for the DC Green Bank is, is fairly minimal, nothing compared to what, yeah. you, what you have in Connecticut. Um, but it, back to this question on how do you drive sort of new technologies, we've looked at microgrids on several projects um, and yeah. they just don't pan out. It's encouraging to hear that Massachusetts uh, or Boston has found a, a viable project. I'm curious sort of if there are other ways, and I, I appreciate that answer on sort of you know, mounting a green bank on top of uh, at least the culture or the institutions that are there, are there any other sort of ways that we might be driving innovation in the, um, at the project level or in the, in the technologies? So the only other example I have um, would be, um, we partnered with a company called New England Hydropower, mm -hmm. and they're taking a run-of-the-river technology, an Archimedes screw from Europe. Yeah. It's been tried and tested in Europe, but it hasn't been deployed in the U.S. Mm. And uh, we actually, uh, our predecessor, and this was kind of a holdover, made an operational demonstration investment in this company to find a location in Connecticut. They ended up finding one. We ended up getting paid back our op operational demonstration loan, but we flipped that project into a long-term contract with the municipality. So now you've got a municipality that's taking the power from that hydro system over a 30-year period. So just as we're seeing solar PPAs and solar leasing, think about a 30-year term with the option of going 10 more years. And these are hydro facilities. You know, they last a long time. But think about the innovation required to bring in private investment to issue a bond to help a company like this. So that's a proof of concept for them now. Now they have a financial structure that they should be able to go. Now the siting and permitting of run of the river hydro is a huge, huge issue, a bottleneck, right? Yeah. So, but that's, that's an example. And that's why I think there's an opportunity here in Massachusetts to figure that out because you have technology innovation everywhere. If you can pull it through with the Green Bank, that would just be you know, the icing on the cake. In the case of uh, some technologies, I don't know that the public sector, you know, is going to need to play as much of a role. I mean, uh, the utility companies, in in the process of remaking themselves, are are looking at a lot of of this stuff, and our our uh, market structure is also uh, changing very rapidly. Um, in New York, they've got the uh, Rev for New York process. Here, we've got this um, IMAP process. We're talking about. Um, uh, you know, changing our market structure to allow uh, for, it's not carbon pricing, but it's to allow for, for you know, uh, distributed energy resources, to allow for storage, to allow for sort of different technologies to participate in, in the market. Where we don't have that now, our market structure right now is based on lots of central plants, <coughs> you know, bidding into the market and that's how it works. So. Um, that, that may be something that comes along with the utility industry transformation also. It may drive a lot of it. Hopefully, we'll get it right. It'll take us 20 years. <laughs> Other questions? I have, I have sort of uh, one last question in a way, because I'm looking at time. Sort of wearing my old MIT hat. You, you, we used to always talk about how in energy, technological change is very slow in terms of particular adoption of new, new technologies, right? And so I remember being drilled in my head from, from the beginning that if we really want to create scaled change, 
we need to make judgment decisions, meaning we, we can't simply say it's all of the above, given the, the scarcity of capital. Yes, there's a lot of capital, but capital we can move into energy is not limitless, right? So I've always turned over my head, and it's, 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 I'm just interested in what your take is um, collectively, that if, if adoption of technology and energy is particularly slow compared to other industries, which I think is still the case, then it's an interesting question around that Boston is well positioned to create new technology, as you said. We're upstream. Um, but in many ways, those technologies, given the, 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 the scale and rapidity of the challenges we face, a lot of those technologies are not going to be able to solve, in the medium term even, a lot of the challenges that Carter has rightly you know, identified. So in, I'm increasingly sort of biased towards deployment, towards really the nearer term solutions that are Open, that are commercialized but, but not yet scaled versus the, my friends in, in venture capital who, who you know, have their role in the ecosystem but, but we're talking about maybe 40 or 50 years until they're deployed. How do you, how do you, uh, you know, and, and I mean, solar's an example, right? Really, 60s effectively. I mean, this started a long time ago, right? Uh, and we always forget that, including my generation, younger kids think solar was just a flip of a switch. Solar was not the flip of the switch, right? And we're and it still was, going. It was only because right? of um, you know massive investments by a lot of governments, right? Um, you know, Germany including, and Spain yeah, and, and China you know, in terms of China. supply and demand. Yeah, Germany, yeah. Spain, demand, China, supply. Correct. That, that yeah. was the only reason That's why right. solar became right. you right. know uh, commercially right. viable. So how that so so you know so I mean I am just it's a, it's a value job. I mean it really is a decision. It's not just there is no silver. You know you know the climate discussions was there's no silver bullet. We have to do everything. Well that's that's an easy glib facile answer. In right. some ways you can't do everything, right? So so I'm kind of looking to you, Brian, in the sense of I, I I like what you're doing. I sometimes wonder about what we're doing. To be honest, in, in Boston uh, upstream. So the, there there's the technical technical economic point of view, uh, but also the behavioral economics point sure. as well. So if you look at, for example, in Connecticut, I think we, we've flown planes over the state, we know the potential rooftop yep. for solar PV, and it's like 3.8 gigawatts. It's a yep. lot yeah. uh, of, of mm -hmm. systems. Mm -hmm. um, our policy target is 300 megawatts, so 10% roughly of the potential. Mm -hmm. But we, you know, you can jog down the street, ride down the street, and see a perfect roof, but know that that homeowner is not going to install right. solar PV. So your actual potential is much further down. So, yeah. so this is really not only a game of trying to create a financial tool that makes solar PV more affordable mm -hmm. to that household, cheaper than what they're currently paying, but we also have to change, have to change their mindsets yeah. that this is the thing that they have to do. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're just always going to be at the innovator part of the curve and we're never going to get right. to the growth and realize the full potential. That's just solar, which is now right. commercialized. Right? Right. Right. And, and I think... Yeah, I, um, to channel my our chairman Reed Hunt, who was the he was the chairman yeah. of the Federal Communications right. Commission during the '90s, and he always draws these parallels to telecom. And you know, yeah. just you know, last weekend I walked into a store and bought this a cellular mobile phone called an iPhone that wouldn't have worked 15 years ago on anything platform, and I financed the purchase in the store with a person holding an iPad and did a credit check in five seconds and I wanted it and millions and millions of people want it. The point being, 
I don't think this comes from top-down policymakers picking technologies and saying, well, solar is not the thing we're going to push for. We're going to wait till everyone can sure. have like a nuke in their uh, a nuclear plant in their living room. Yeah. It's what is the technology? What's the solution that causes people to line up and want to have it? What is the solution that because there is no form of pen, market penetration that occurs nearly fast enough that isn't driven by consumer demand. Mm -hmm. You can have mandates, you can have rebates, right. you can have remakes. All, if, if all those things don't add up to something that people intrinsically want, yeah. then it's never... This is, sort of, this is sort of the Elon Musk argument. That's what he right, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a, make, there's, it, yeah. make it beautiful. Make, make it beautiful, beautiful right. make it <laughs> simple. And so I think it's a, you know, I, you look at telecom, like obviously there's a massive amount of supportive policy that came in place that drove the investment to build the platform, drove the investments into the businesses that resulted in, you know, market competition and demand being formed around something new and now, you know, faster, better, cheaper. If it's not one of those things, no one's going to want to buy it. Right. And so I'm not sort of saying like, leave it up to the markets, but I am saying that right. I think the the role of, of government and policymakers here, I think in some ways it needs to change to be more about how do we enable people to really want this. Sure. I mean, I'll say, this might be, you know, a, 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 the worst thing to say in Massachusetts, but <laughs> nobody wants energy efficiency. Like, right. nobody yeah, no, wants that. Nobody wants to save 10% on their energy bills, except for government, actually. Government's probably the only place where they really sure. do intrinsically want it. Exactly. Like, how do you make that attractive? Right. So it's not just a happy place. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone wants it. No one wants it to do anything to it. Right, exactly. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> if you can sign a piece of paper, right. it magically happens. So one of the interesting things that I had to grapple with when I was when I was doing the report on these guys was um, something that, that, um, uh, that uh, Craig brought up that just blew my mind. And um, it was, what is, what is the implication of decentralizing power generation? You know, what, what, are, the, what are the societal implications of that yep. when the customer is also the generator? Right. When, you know, when in Germany they actually have this like movement um, of this like power to the people kind of thing. Um, where they're talking about it as being this sort of revolutionary. Yeah, we own the power. Yeah, yeah. we we Absolutely. own the means of production. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's a, like, exactly. It's a, you know, what are what are the uh, the implications? Um, this would be a great thing for uh, like a PhD in econ, you know, economics to like take. How does it on. change behavior? How does it change? How does it change everything? No. Um, no. When you have a massive no. restructuring, a massive. Um, you know, distribution of what had been a highly centralized uh, industry. I think it's a very, very yeah, interesting good point. topic. And and point. to get it back to the you know the um, financial thing, what what you know what are the implications for um, capital of exactly. that? Um, yeah, when it's much more dispersed. When it's much more dispersed. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating subject. Any so, so students out here? Two, so one last question, and I've got one to wrap up. It's going to be by far the most difficult question. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm going to give to Brian. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to connect those two points. So if you talk about kind of this decentralization of the power platform, and you look at battery prices going down, and you think about the potential for grid defection, and then you think about what Jeff was saying about uh, making it sexy for consumers that they want it. If, if you can get a battery and get some solar panels and not pay electricity bills for the, for 30 years, mm -hmm. that 
might be something that would people react. Yeah, totally change the scene. Hawaii right now. Uh, yeah, right. I, I was actually at a grid modernization conference this morning, and I brought up this the pro the prospect of like in the ten year time frame massive grid defection, and uh, yeah. it, no one really had an answer for for the potential of what that would look like and what that. Green Mountain Power um, uh, right now is uh, got a really interesting program. It's very expensive to serve rural customers with wires. Right. Um, and so Green Mountain Power is allowing their customers <coughs> to leave them. They'll say, we will put storage and solar on your house. We will own it. We will operate it. Wow. We'll fix it when it goes down. Mm -hmm. We will sell you the power. Mm -hmm. um, we're still your utility company. It's just there's no wire. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that is cool. Mm. And it's saving the utility money. So last question, Brian, very important question. How many green ties do you own? <laughs> <laughs> very impressive. Very impressive. This is the most important one. Yes. So we, I think we should thank Brian for wearing the green tie and the rest of the panelists for their wearing the green tie. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.